Hello, hello. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another PC Boys podcast. I hope you are all having a fantastic day. Sadly, it's raining for us up here. But today, I am being joined by a special guest, my friend Alex Huff from college. And we're going to be discussing Transformers, Spider-Verse, Marvel, the writer's strike. So I've got quite a few uh, topics today. But Huff, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience again and uh, plug in your Twitch if you want to. Yeah, for sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Huff. As Logan said, we met in college and I actually just graduated uh, just over a month ago now. Um, I work in television and communications. And if you want to come hang out with me on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Huff underscore fanatic. We like playing games and hanging out. And this this podcast episode was kind of inspired by a, a rant that we went on the other day where it went from streaming Stardew Valley to quick pause. We're talking about all the movies that are out right now. I uh, know it's good times, good times, but I'll make sure to put uh, Huff's Twitch in the description of the podcast, as well as the link tree to all of our socials for the Instagram, Twitter, Discord, you name it. And also uh, for the Rumble, for those of you that like to listen to me commentate on whatever uh, there is to talk about. Um, but so getting into today's main topic. So first of all, for Transformers, since you haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to spoil nothing. But I'm very curious as to what you are expecting from this movie. And maybe hopefully I can make some of the doubts not as doubtful, potentially. I mean, I could barely even tell you what I'm expecting from the movie. So as much as a Transformers fan as I am, I've I think the most recent Transformers related film I've seen was Bumblebee. And yeah, then no, Bum- before that, I I've never I haven't seen any of the the newer releases or anything probably in the last almost decade I'd, I'd probably say well i mean that's not exactly a bad thing because the michael bay movies only got worse as they went along the, the first one very very decent and i can say for sure that bumblebee and this movie are definitely the best transformers movies from the others um Out of the Michael Bay movies, the only ones I would go back and watch is Dark of the Moon and the first one. But that's because Dark of the Moon had some pretty good action. But the lore and the storytelling was very terrible, especially in the last night. That made me want to throw myself out of the theater when I was watching it. Because a lot (laughs) of it makes sense. But this movie and Bumblebee are confirmed to be a reboot. So all you need to see is Bumblebee before watching this one. This Ah, one's not with the other movies. So you have Transformers 1, Revenge of the Fallen, Dark of the Moon, Age of Extinction, The Last Knight. That's a part of the Bay universe. And then this new uh, reboot trilogy is Bumblebee, then Rise of the Beast, then whatever they decide to make after this. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen Age of Extinction or The Last Knight, but I did see the first three. Well, you saw probably the better side of the Bayverse thing because it gets really wacky as the other ones go on. The last night, especially when they try to say like Bumblebee's a part of like World War II and the Autobots have been on planet. It, it made no sense. So 
it, it, it probably doesn't hurt not to watch those. It's, I was going to say, so what you're saying is don't watch those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, unless you're just there to see Bayhem in action, but outside of that, the story is is ridiculous. But, so, funny enough, um, this movie has, I think, critically, out of the Transformers franchise, the second, no, the third highest rating at a 53% from critics. However, the audience score is the highest rated Transformers movie ever, sitting at a 91%. And Bumblebee, if I'm correct, was sitting at 75% with audiences. So if that gives you a little more comfort in the fact of how good this movie is. It does. Because I'll do do respect to critics. Like, sometimes they rate movies, and then I go and watch the movie, and I'm like, why you know what i mean like i i take professional critic ratings with the smallest grain of salt because i almost always disagree with them you know so the funny thing about this is when you look at the actual reviews the critics are coming at this from a standpoint of we need more human characters and oh it's so it's such a generic plot and stuff but then you look at the audience uh, reviews and all the Transformer fans are like, well, this is what we wanted. Like, when you go into a Transformers movie, you have to have an expectation of humans. Yeah. Yeah. Like, when you go into a Transformers movie, the expectations is okay, there's going to be a MacGuffin device, there's going to be good action. And the story, like, I don't go into a Transformers movie expecting like Marvel or like really good cinematic storytelling. I expect a basic plot with. Um, the Transformers um, having their own character arcs. Hopefully the human characters have, you know, something to do in the movie that makes sense. Because in the, as much as I, you know, have nostalgia for the earlier Michael Bay movies, because that was my introduction to Transformers, and Shia LaBeouf screaming all the time, like, it wasn't, (laughs) yeah, it wasn't exactly great, personally, because I was like, he's just screaming all the time for Bumblebee or Optimus to save him. But in this movie, the human characters, while there are some scenes where it's kind of cringy dialogue, more so in the beginning half of the movie, their characters basically... So one's like, um, um, researches ancient artifacts, and that's like her thing. Um, and her character's name, Elena, and then Noah is essentially a ex-military um, vet. So the what they do in this movie is they are playing to what their characters' backgrounds are and kind of, like, what their professions are. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything they do in this movie makes a lot of sense to their characters. And personally, I think they did the human element the best in this movie. I did like Haley Steinfeld and Bumblebee, but the rest of the cast, I'm just kind of like, eh, okay. But they focus more on the robots here, which is good, because Transformers, that's what we want, is more Transformers, less humans. So the fact, I will say Optimus Prime has a character arc, Optimus Primal does, um, Mirage has a huge one. Some of the other Transformers are kind of just there, and the Maximals, I wish they utilized more. When you see the movie, you'll, you'll understand why. But as a huge Beast Wars fan, it was nice to see them, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they seemed relatively accurate to their um, counterparts from the cartoons, um however because of the screen time they weren't able to flesh out each character as much as i'd like to Mm. so i'm actually curious have you ever seen the beast wars cartoons 
was that the one on the hub? Um, I that'd probably be Transformers Prime, unless it was a rerun. Let me. Hub channel, because I remember my actual introduction to Transformers wasn't the movies, but it was the animation on the hub, which I had DirecTV at the kind of end of my childhood, and because uh, we just had like the regular cable four channels for the longest time. And when we eventually moved to DirecTV, every once in a while, they would run a special where we would get the hub channel for free to just kind of like tease us and be like hey if you upgrade you can have access to this content regularly and it was whichever transformers animated show was on the hub in like the mid 2000s which i believe according to google um was transformers prime animation yeah. So I you know, so Beast Wars. Beast Wars. So here's the funny thing about me. I was introduced with the Michael Bay film in 2007 and I got hooked on Transformers and as I grew up, I watched the 80s cartoons. I owned the entire complete series of the G1 Transformers that my dad used to watch. I own Beast Wars seasons 1 and 2. I need to get season 3. Um I have Transformers Prime. Uh, I remember Transformers Animated. There was like Armada Energy. There's so many different Transformers series. But um, I went back and watched all the older Transformers on my own accord to kind of, you know, expand my Transformers knowledge. I know more about Transformers than my dad does. He grew up with them in <laughs> comics and everything. So I try to consume as much Transformers as possible. But the basic gist of Beast Wars is that the Maximals and Predacons are the future descendants of the Autobots and Decepticons. But they go through a transwarp portal that sends them to prehistoric Earth. So they end up being on Earth while the Autobots and Decepticons are still in stasis from when they crash landed in the G1 cartoon on Earth in the first episode. So there's time travel involved. So it gets a little bit muddled. But when it comes to the movie... They, I, I guess the way that they explain it with like maybe a line or two of the fact that they're from their past uh, and their um, future, because it makes sense, like prehistoric Earth they live, but they're also from the future and travel back in time. So that's kind of the gist of them. And then the leader of the Maximals, Optimus Primal, was named after the great leader of the Autobots, Optimus Prime, mm-hmm. which is always funny to see those two interact on screen because they're like, wait. What's your name? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I I would say for Beast Wars fans, it's kind of, I guess, disappointing with how little screen time uh, that they get considering the movie is called Rise of the Beast. But if you're a G1 Transformers fan, especially when it comes to like the designs or if you're a 90s fan because this movie is in the 90s and you can really tell by the soundtrack and everything... Um, I know a lot of people were praising it because of that, because it's essentially like a G1 cartoon, but live action, the best way I can describe it. And plus they did Unicron Justice, who would be like the big bad, kind of like a Thanos for the Transformers universe. Um, Mm -hmm. to kind of give, I guess, a little bit of background on Unicron and his origins. So Unicron and Primus are like two of the original gods of the universe in Transformers lore. 
And depending on which continuity they are, they either were planet transformers, uh, Primus being Cybertron and Unicron being his own planet, um, and or they were gods that got trapped in space rocks and then the planets eventually uh, formed around them. But so Unicron is essentially um, the destruction and chaos bringer being essentially the evil brother of Primus and Primus is the one that brings balance and life to the universe. So Unicron's all about eating planets and destroying worlds and traveling through the multiverse, if you will, because he's a multiversal um, God figure. And then Primus is the same thing, except there's a different version of Primus in each universe. And they don't really touch upon Primus really in this movie, they just kind of have one line mentioning him. They haven't even in the Bay films. So I thought that that was cool. Minor spoiler, I guess, but doesn't really spoil much about the movie's plot or anything. Right. But, um, yeah, no. So there, so when it comes to this movie, I guess when you go into it and it comes to expectations, you know, it's, yeah, basic plot, but it's easy to follow. The acting's pretty well done. Action's obviously great. Um, it's just, it kind of depends on, I guess, what you go to the movies to watch or what you're expecting to watch with Transformers. Cause I know some people go into it and they're like, oh, this movie wasn't, you know, written as well as I thought it was. It's like, it's a Transformers movie. It's based upon toys. You know, I mean, there's not much they can really do with that on some like deeper level. Right. Yeah. I think, so do you think that the third installment will touch on Primus more. So, I'm hoping so. But, th so, are, the way are they looking at a trilogy or are they looking at more than that? So, right now, they're trying to make this into a trilogy, a whole reboot trilogy, including Bumblebee. Um, except, they they obviously want to do spinoff projects if the movie makes a lot of money. They could do a Beast Wars spinoff project with Maximals and Predacons if they wanted to. And right now they have an animated movie called Transformers 1 coming out next year. And if I'm correct, that movie is supposed to take place before Bumblebee, but in this universe, they're just doing it animated. Um, and Chris Hemsworth is supposed to play, I guess, Optimus Prime before he became Optimus Prime, which he would be Orion Pax. So I'm interested to see how that is because I personally, I can't see Chris Hemsworth playing Optimus Prime. Playing Orion Pax makes sense because that would be before he became Optimus, but then you'd have to bring in Peter Cullen at that point once he does become Optimus. So right. I'm interested about them kind of taking a deep delve into previous lore to this universe in particular. But yeah, they are working on a trilogy, the Unicron trilogy, and I'm hoping that Primus actually becomes a major part by the end of the trilogy, because I think, if I'm correct, the only time I remember seeing Primus in any form transformed outside of, like, the comics or lore was in Transformers Energon, which was an animated series on TV a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping they do more with Primus. I'm hoping that they actually use that lore, but we'll have to see. But them mentioning Primus, I think, is a good first step because they've never done that live action wise before. Right. Yeah, no, just something I thought. And then what's your take on the animation? Like, not just Chris Hemsworth being in it, but just like in general, because not 
I'm I hate stereotypes, but like usually animations because like of course we're gonna talk about Spider Verse later, and that does not fall into this category. But usually animations, but specifically Transformers animations, have always been targeted at a younger audience. So do you think that the animation is going to be almost simpler? Like if people thought this storyline was simple it's going to be simpler because it's going to be for a younger audience or do you think they'll stick with the current audience that they have with the animated film so since it's supposed to be a prequel to bumblebee i would hope that they try to keep it in line with the audience but i mean you have to think about it this way too transformers is designed for kids regardless of the medium that it's it's done in because it is about essentially you know toys because that's what transformers started out with was toys and then they made a story on it. So I think that they'll still keep it in the same vein for the audience members. I mean, anybody that's a Transformers fan is going to watch it regardless if it's a you know animated live action. But my only hope is that they actually utilize the origin story of Optimus Prime, Megatron, and you know Cybertron before the war because. The War for Cybertron trilogy they did on Netflix back like a year or two ago. And they had mm-hmm. three parts. There was um, Siege, um, then Earthrise. I forgot what the, I think the last one was called Kingdom. But they did a very good job explaining the war on Cybertron. And they showed a different version of Optimus Prime too in that show where he was, you know, not a confident leader. He was questioning a lot of things. He also had a love interest being Alita 1, which he also did have back in the G1 cartoon. Um but my my only hope is that they actually utilize the Transformers lore because in the live action movies, they really haven't done that until the last few movies. Um, mm-hmm. But that's mainly tapping into more of like the nostalgia. I want them to really take advantage of the, uh, the lore because the video games, uh, Transformers War for Cybertron and Fall of Cybertron are the best Transformers stories ever out of all movies. Cartoons, I don't care. They had the best storyline because you could see the war, how it was affecting, you know, every Transformer. You saw the Decepticons point of view, the Autobots point of view. And it it was very interesting. It got me very interested into the lore. So Mm -hmm. I think it depends on how they write the story, because if they write it more geared towards kids, then there's not going to be a lot of lore and there's not going to be, in my opinion, a lot of substance to it. And then it just becomes a kid's movie. So if they're well, trying to make this a prequel, when I was a kid, I didn't care about lore. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm yeah. not gonna dive into like, oh, where did they originate? What's all the history? Like, I'm like, ooh, pretty colors. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, I-, I think they can strike a balance. They did with the War for Cybertron trilogy on Netflix, in my opinion. So I think they can definitely do it for this. It's just, will they do it or not? It depends on who they get on for writing it. And considering the writer strike, which we'll talk about later, you know, that can vary. Um, and what the direction is that they're going in. And live action wise, I can't talk about it because you haven't seen the movie yet. But at the ending of this movie, let's just say they set up a Marvel connected universe, if you will, of their own properties. So it's going to be like if this was just Transformers we were talking about then it would be like, okay, there's a pretty streamline, but they kind of threw something in there where I'm like, oh no, how is this going to work? 
And is this going to work at all? So that's all that I can, I can say, but yeah, they're trying to essentially do their own Marvel studios thing right now. Mm. I don't know how it's going to work out for them. And I'm a little worried about it, but when you, uh, when you see the movie, we can talk more about it, but it's got me a little bit worried because I'm like, I don't know. That seems like a pretty risky move considering uh, what the fans have been asking for. And then we kind of get it in this movie. And then, yeah. So hard not to say it, but. <laughs> I know people are pretty divided on it. Yeah. It, it sounds like it sounds like there was enough of a balance almost in the movie. Of course, like, you know, I haven't seen it yet, but from what you've been saying and the fact that people are divided, it seems like there's enough of a balance where like it, the, the mass public could go either way in terms of like, are they worried? Are they happy? You know? Yeah. I, I think it depends on like, if you're a Transformers fan or not, because when you go into a Transformers movie as a Transformers fan, you're like, I want the Transformers to have characters. I want them to have story arcs. And like I said, they actually did that in, in this movie, um, kind of like how they did with Bumblebee as well in his own movie. But mm -hmm. when you look at the Bay movies, it's basically, oh, like Optimus Prime is always, I'm, I want to kill you all the time. Like he's always screaming about how he wants to kill somebody or rip heads off and stuff. There wasn't really character arcs in the old Bay movies. So it's nice to see it in, in, in this movie and, and then focusing on the Transformers more. Um, but with what they're trying to do, it makes me worried about the focus on the actual Transformer characters. Mm. Because what they're trying to do is going, in my opinion, to take away from that. And that's taking a step back when they've taken a step forward. So, yeah. I, I don't know. They're just trying to make more money, obviously, at the end of the day and sell toys. Because that's mainly what Transformers does. But... I'm very interested to see it. Um, at least a Transformer storyline. I'm very optimistic. It looks like it can go in a very good direction, depending on what they decide to do with this thing they threw in. That's the only thing that has me super worried. Yeah, see, this is when it, uh, it comes into play when you're a casual fan like me, where, like, I sit pretty because, obviously, I care about the content. Like, I don't want to watch crappy content, but... I can go into a Transformers movie and just enjoy it, whereas, like, I go into a Marvel movie that I'm so much more invested in. And, of course, like, I'm going to enjoy it, but I also have, like, such high expectations at this point because I'm so invested. So what I'm hearing is casual fans like me are going to have a great experience with the new Transformers movie. Yeah, I mean, the, the new movie for Transformers fans were it was great like it as a transformers fan it gave me everything i wanted like all the little easter eggs and stuff so the main villain in this movie scourge is actually voiced by peter dinklage who was in infinity wars the uh if i'm correct like the dwarf or the um the guy that helps thor get his hammer um yeah. so he plays scourge and i thought he did a great job but his character essentially um, serves Unicron, kind of like how Galvatron did in the 1980s movie. And he um, is a hunter, so he essentially kills robots and takes their insignias and then puts them on him. So he had, like, Predacon insignias on him, Decepticon, Autobot, Elite Guard, 
um, and the Wreckers. So he had a bunch of different, like, Transformer emblems all over him from all the kills that he's gotten. And I, I was very interested to see what they'd do with him, but they cut out a lot of stuff out of this movie. Because from what we're hearing, they cut out a whole fight scene with a Decepticon in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the transit scene, as they call it. Uh, so, so he got taken out of the movie, and they took some other stuff out of this film. So there, there's obviously a lot more here, and studio interference will obviously come in and say, oh, we don't want this or put this in the movie. And Stephen Capel Jr., the director of this movie, you can tell he's a Transformers fan, and he has a lot of lore, same as uh, Travis Knight with Bumblebee. Um, my only worry is what the studio is going to try to do with these movies because Stephen Campbell Jr. did a great job with like the the callbacks to previous movies um and even when it came to like Mirage in this movie like his um vehicle mode in this movie is actually Jazz's from G1 so a lot of people thought it was Jazz at first when the trailer came out um but they do a nice nod to um you know him and another Transformers vehicle mode in there um, but there's a lot of different references and stuff that, you know, Transformer fans, you know, just die and melt over when they see on screen. So it's great that they, um, they put all those things in there. I'm just, I'm worried about the studio because the reason that this, the surprise ending thing happened that I'm talking about, the setup that they're doing, this came from the studio. This wasn't, you know, the director's choice. He didn't want to do this. And of course the studios always come in and ruin these movies. So the question is now, how are they going to balance it? That's uh, really the only thing about the movie I disliked was really the ending and the fact that there could have been more Maximals. But then again, with how many characters they had to, you know, jumble in this movie, I understand. And with the you know time limit of the movie, I can understand why they didn't get as much as they probably wanted to. But it's a good setup. So I'm at least happy about that. So, yeah, a good balance. Yeah, that's what essentially I, I'd probably boil it down to. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not making bad money either. It's almost at $200 million worldwide. It's being carried internationally pretty heavily. Um, but that's still pretty good considering the fact of all the movies it's going up against. It, mm-hmm. it, I know it was number one over Spider-Verse. Was it last weekend, I think? But... No, I, I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, there's a lot of competition, so I'm just kind of interested to see where Rise of the Beast ends up by the time it's done. I Obviously, I think it's going to surpass Bumblebee, um, no problem, but I just find it interesting that this movie is being very well-received because normally Transformer movies, you know, outside They're of Bumblebee... well-received, yeah. Yeah, like the fans love it, the critics hate it, but who cares about what the critics have to say? Like, normally the critics will say this movie's great and then you go and watch it and you're like i don't see what's so great about this you know it, it seems to happen quite often especially now a lot of critics seem to hate things that the audience loves so yeah I, um, i'm hoping that the movie does well box office wise and toy sales because that really matters when it comes to transformers getting another movie um so we'll, ju- we'll just have to see where they go from here but i'm pretty excited i'm you know i'm very confident you're gonna enjoy the film but the ending, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll wait and see what you think about that when, when we get there. Okay. You'll be the first person I text. I'll be like, Logan, <laughs> what is this? Oh, I'll, I'll have all the answers. Trust me. But yeah, no. So that's really all I wanted to cover for Transformers and stuff. Can't get into the nitty gritty until, until you see it. Yeah. 
But moving on to the second major topic, Spider-Verse. Now, this is kind of a flip-flop situation where you've seen the movie and I haven't. However, I've had a lot of stuff spoiled via YouTube thumbnails and um, people saying some stuff. And I'm like, well, damn it. But with the first Spider-Verse movie, I didn't even get to see that till it came out on uh, DVD. But how about you tell the audience, I guess what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it, kind of kind of give us a visual here, and then we can start talking theories and stuff about some of the things in the movie. Yeah, so, um, uh, was there anything I didn't like about it? I don't think there was anything I didn't like about it. Um, I need to go see it a second time, but it's it's a great movie. Like, my partner and I were talking, and he saw it a week before I did. And he texted me, and he was like, it's better than the first one. And of course, the first Spider-Verse movie is, like, you know, one of the best movies of all time, you know what I mean? And I was like, how can it, you know, like, once you hit that status, it's like, how do you, how do you do better than that and especially no offense sony and marvel both don't necessarily have the best track records for like their sequels or like the next installments being better i mean most studios unfortunately don't um not to say that they they're bad or anything but you know what i mean like there's always that expectation of sequels are never going to be better than the first one and oh my god the animation is gorgeous stunning um it stays true to the animation of the first movie but it still gives you something new and fresh which is really nice because i find in a lot of animated series you don't necessarily see an evolution of animation because they want to stay true to the first installment but they stay true while challenging it which is it's it's hard to explain you'll need to see it but imagine the first movie with a little bit more watercolor and it's 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 just a gorgeous animation it's seamless it's gorgeous um the storyline is great there's so much to take in and digest and theorize about the only thing I'm upset about, which I'm upset with a smile on my face, but I'm still upset, is that there wasn't there wasn't a conclusion to the movie. It was like kind of like how Infinity War, right? Avengers Infinity War. Yeah. When everybody, I can talk about that now, right? Like I can spoil Infinity War. People yeah, see yeah, that's been out for a while. <laughs> so when everybody poofs, you know, and turns to dust, you know, you obviously have this open end of like, okay, well now they have to bring people back. Like, you know, you don't necessarily have like a solid ending, but at the same time, that's the conclusion of that movie. You know, like the Infinity War storyline has been told and the Endgame storyline has been set up. Like, in my opinion, Infinity War and Endgame had, like, the most cohesion between the two of them, like, that seamless flow into the next movie. But it still had its own ending and could be a standalone film, right? 
and that's like honestly something that I love about the Marvel movies is how they're standalone films, but how they all tie into each other, uh, which is great for casual fans. But you cannot be a casual fan of this movie because there is no conclusion for this movie. There is just the continuation, that open-endedness into the next Spider-Verse movie. I'm not going to lie. I don't know off the top of my head how long this movie is, but, you know, roughly two hours, like, like every movie. But I was ready to sit in that theater for another two to three hours. Like, it didn't feel like I watched a two-hour movie, which is always great. Um... Because that's something, all due respect to, like, Avatar and Titanic, but those series being, like, longer movies, you feel it. Like, you're, I feel like every single time, I love those movies, but every single time, like, halfway through, I'm like, okay, I need a break. Like, I can't sit through the whole thing and get restless. But I could have sat through another two to three hours of this. Zero cares. And I was ready to, and I wanted to, and then it ended, and I looked at my partner, and it was his second time seeing it, and I was like no like no shot and he just started laughing at me and i was like no shot i have to wait god knows how long until the next movie to get the conclusion that i deserve and i got so excited in the final scene and i didn't get it i didn't get the release that i needed and like you know it's all this like tension that's now built up and I I can't do anything with this energy so it's frustrating and I'm mad but it was still really really good and I wouldn't change it you know what I mean like it's just one of those things where you're like you know you're frustrated but you're happy and you get it it's it's the biggest cliffhanger I've ever experienced, and I'm upset. <laughs> I mean, I think I might know where they're going with this. So the ending, I I do know about, and um, I, I was like, oh, okay, so we're gonna go we're gonna go this route now, where um, you kind of subvert the expectation, I guess, of because we're talking about the multiverse and all the different kind of Spider Man, so. Right. So, um, we will probably talk a little spoilers here, ladies and gents. So if you haven't seen Across the Spider-Verse, you know, maybe, maybe tune this part of the podcast out or zoom ahead a little bit. I'll, I'll probably put some timestamps in once I re-listen to it. But, so, I haven't even seen the movie and I already know the ending where Miles is tied up on the punching bag. We get a reveal of the Prowler, but it's not aaron davis as the prowler instead it's miles in this universe as the prowler i'm like okay that's actually interesting that's that's actually gonna bring up an you know interesting i guess plot for the next movie um and then the spot um personally i don't know much about the spot and what they do with him in this movie but if I were to You're guess, you're not going he, to when you watch the movie either. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> well, I think he's a a red herring villain, if you will. I don't think he's the yes. real villain. And so th this is what I was talking about on your stream the other day when I was getting to, into Theory Land about Spider-Man 2099. I'm so I was thinking even when I was watching the trailers, I was like, something's not right here because Miguel O'Hara would not be 
bringing all these spider people together and essentially be going after Miles for whatever reason. And apparently, I guess what the reason was is he's not supposed to be Spider-Man like the spider he got bit by or whatever, I guess, is from a different universe, got teleported his universe, accidentally bit him. So you have Spider-Man 2099 with all these spider people in this one place. That's my not theory- why they're going after Miles. Hmm. Still stuff to be discovered for when I see the movie. That's good. I'm glad I still have things to look forward to. It's not all yes, sport. I so they bring it up. It's a point of conversation. But the reason that they're going after Miles, and I'll keep it as broad as possible, just to like give you something else to theorize about, but also like not entirely spoil it, is Miles discovers the canon timeline. And he realizes what is next in his future, and he doesn't like it. Interesting. So he wants to do something about it, but when you mess up the canon, bad things happen, and that's why they go after him. Interesting. Actually, I actually like that. Okay. So, so. Like, they they recognize <laughs> that a spider from 42 came into Miles's, I don't know what his earth is off the top of my head. Again, the only number I know is 42, because that's where the spider's from. Um, and he, the spider comes in. This is actually where Spot comes into play once you get Spot's background. But the spider comes into his universe, bites Miles instead. Um, but if that were the problem, this elite force of spider people across the multiverse would have addressed Miles' anomaly much sooner. If I'm correct, isn't the spot one of the scientists that worked on Kingpin's collider? Yes. And is the scientist that brought the spider into the universe all right so the thing when it comes to 2099 is a lot like the other day you were you seemed very confused about what i was trying to i guess get at like what what i'm trying to say so i think that spider-man 2099 like the real one is in this universe i just think right now the one we are currently seeing is not the real one but rather an imposter if you will being Morlun the vampire. And it makes sense actually why this would be the case. So Morlun is able to travel through the multiverse and consume the totems of each spider person. That's how he sustains his powers. So by collecting all these spider people through the multiverse, by being able to travel through the multiverse, in one location where you can keep feeding on them to regain power, he essentially has a, uh, an unlimited supply of spider totems that he's able to consume. But by pretending to be another spider person, he can not only get them there, but he can also consume them, if you will, without any suspicion, if he is, you know, pretending to be another Spider-Man. No one's going to assume that he is a bad guy. So I think, like, the whole spot and, like, all this other stuff, I think it's a red herring. And if I'm correct... So when he consumes... Because I don't know this character... When he consumes the totems, 
what does that do to the spider people of which you consume? If I'm if I'm correct, he kills them by consuming them. If I'm because like I know more one no allusion to that. Like there well, that, is no spider people are disappearing. There is no none of that. I'm not saying you're wrong because there is one scene where Miguel does something that kind of alludes to this. Um, he has like a, a needle and he injects something into him self so like that scene makes me think that you're not necessarily wrong but nowhere in the movie do they talk about spider people disappearing or their powers disappearing or anything like there is none of that the only hint that we have is when he injects something into his arm well the reason i say that is because the way that his character is acting just doesn't seem like Spider-Man, like, actual Miguel O'Hara. Like, I, there's just something about his character that seems very off to me. Even when I was watching the trailers, I was like, this doesn't feel like Spider-Man 2099 that I know of. How because, do you know Miguel? What, what, well, do you, what is your impression of Miguel? So, when... Let's just take this with a grain of salt, though, because Spider-Man 2099, like, I, the most I know about him is from the games that I've played, which was Edge of Time and Shattered Dimensions. But, so, in those games, he knows about the multiverse, if you will, through, like, Madam Web and whatnot. And his powers are very different than Peter Parker's because they're not radioactive. So he has some different abilities compared to them. But he's not as aggressive, I guess, as what he seems like in the trailers. Because I haven't seen the movie, but based upon the trailers, he seems more aggressive than what he is in the games. If that makes sense? Yes, he is extremely aggressive. And that that's what I think throws, throws me off, because every other spider person is not really aggressive. Like, like, outside of, like, them, if they have, like, the Venom symbiote or any symbiote attached to them, or if we were talking about, uh, was it Man-Beast? Like, the version of Spider-Man that turns into an actual spider. Like, there are some that are, yes, um, aggressive, but 2099 is, is not that. So, in, so in we get part of Miguel's backstory. And how he discovered the multiverse. And that, I think the movie explains his aggression. I don't want to, like, say much about it because it does give away a lot of hints and tidbits and stuff that you would really enjoy. But I believe through his telling of, like, his origin story and you reading between the lines. I think it explains I don't necessarily think it's like an aggression. I think it's like an obsessive control. But it comes off as 
aggression to people that aren't understanding of what he's been through and what he's trying to do. But I think how they start to explain his story justifies what you saw in the trailer. If that makes sense. Well, I mean, yeah. But at the same time, if like, they're trying to far-fetched, like, I feel like any Spider-Man that went through this and is trying to achieve the mission that he is trying to achieve, like, Peter Parker or Gwen or Miles or Penny or Porky or, you know, like, any of them, I think, would have a similar reaction. Well, the thing about it, I think that because so the, so this I don't know if this has to do with animate the animation of the character, but when you look at twenty ninety nine, at the end of Spider Verse or at uh yeah the original Spider Verse, his character design also looks a little different, but that maybe it was just a design change they made. But just something about him and the way that he's acting to me personally seems like there's something up with it like let's think about it what if miles being an anomaly fucks up his plan of consuming spider people because if if he can travel the multiverse and you know consume spider totems and them introducing this timeline where this is not supposed to be spider-man and now he is could throw a wrench in his plans uh, potentially, because more, that's essentially what Morlun does. He just goes around consuming spider totems by absorbing their life force. So, t to me, like, I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to be like, oh, this is Miguel and his backstory, so people feel empathy for it. But here's the thing. If they're trying to subvert you and make you not believe that he's a bad guy, then when it happens and beyond the Spider-Verse, and you figure out he's Morlun, then they're like, Oh shit, I never saw that coming. But another reason I think it's more one is in the upcoming Madam Web movie that Sony Pictures is making, the live action stuff, more one is supposed to be either the main villain or the main focal point. And since all of these movies and the animated Spider-Verse all takes place in the same, you know, multiverse um in and of itself, it would make sense for more one to have something to do with Spider-Verse if he's connected to the Madam Web project, because Madam Web also sees into the multiverse. She's a multiversal entity as well. Mm -hmm. So if more ones in that movie and everything's being connected, I would not doubt that more one has something to do with these Spider-Verse movies currently. Cause the spot just kind of seems like a funny villain for them to choose. Even back in the day, he was kind of like one of those, in the comics, like a funny villain that you wouldn't expect to actually do anything or have really much of a threat. And then, yeah, turning Miles into the the Prowler at the very end of the movie sets up a lot of interesting dynamics for sure, but I still don't think that that's going to be like the main villain thing. I mean, you got to think about it. Miles versus Miles would be interesting and emotional, yes. Mm. However, I feel like it's more of a making Miles's character have further development kind of thing. I don't think it's going to be like the big battle they're building towards. I think that Morlun being one of the, if not the most dangerous character to all spider people, it would make sense for him to be 
the main big bad. Because if you're going into Beyond the Spider-Verse, which is essentially part two to Across the Spider-Verse, because that's how they set it up, right? what's their major villain? Like, what's the major endgame that they set up in this in this movie? By the sounds of it, if it's Miles, that's interesting. But the Prowler is not really a endgame boss, if you will. Like, if you imagine you were to play a video game. What if I told it? you Spot went from like a joke to butt hurt that he was called a joke and is no longer a joke? Well, I guess then I'd have to be like, what's his plan? I, this is why I need you to watch the movie because I have a theory that Miles is not an anomaly. And which kind of disproves the whole like Marlon is upset that Miles is an anomaly and like throwing off his thing, right? But they do stuff with Spot where he realizes he's not that big and bad of a villain so he becomes that big and bad of a villain so i think they have enough for the next spider-verse between spot and the miles as prowler arc to have enough villains plus i don't think miguel is morlon but i do think so <sighs> He's not a bad guy, and he's not a bad guy, but I think Miguel's character is, like, troubled and misguided, and I think while he's not a villain, he will be an obstacle in the next half of the story, and I think we're going to see so much character development from him by the end of the next movie, which I'm so excited about, because, like, I just, I want more Miguel. Um... I need more 2099. But there I don't think Miles is an anomaly and I think they have enough villain arcs to play around with that they don't need another. Hmm. And here's the reason I don't think... I think we can talk about my theory about why Miles is not... is no longer an anomaly. I don't think that gives away any spoilers. I mean, that's it, fine with me. Um, so, all these spiders have... Okay. All the spiders are collected in one place. You know that, right? Yeah. So you can assume that they have the ability to go to different universes. Because how did they end up in this one universe altogether, right? Yeah. Okay. They talk about the canons and they talk about, you know what happens if you break a cannon and like you can and and they kind of you know they touch on the stuff with doctor strange and the multiverse of madness too which like i think some of that logic applies um they we we've seen through doctor strange and through the previous spider-verse movie 
what happens when you mess up a world like the universe will cave in on itself and we we see this with loki right and they're not anomalies i forget what they're called um hmm? incursions no um think loki the tv the disney plus tv what do they call anomalies because they had another word for it an anomaly yeah what was it tva no not not variants is it tva tva and variants variants that's what they were called um, where they went and, like, collect variants and stuff, right? But through the Loki TV show, through Doctor Strange and the multiverse and the newest Tom Holland Spider-Man and everything, when you mess up another world, that world can cave in on itself, right? Like, it can get destroyed. And we see that a lot in a lot of different TV shows and stuff, where if multiverses collide too much and you mess with the original timeline too much i.e the canon um the world just kind of collapses in and in and on itself but the fact that miles is still in existence and his universe has not collapsed in on itself I don't think he's the anomaly everybody thinks he is. I think either when Peter Parker died in Miles's universe, the universe corrected itself. Or I think that was just the plan all along. But I don't think Miles is the anomaly that everybody says he is. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, especially if they're putting in, like, the PlayStation lore, Miles is Spider-Man in that universe, too. So, unless they're saying... I don't know. Like, I haven't seen the movie, but then it doesn't make sense at all, because in other continuities throughout the multiverse, Miles is always Spider-Man. So why would it be anomaly this time? I have no idea. Like I think maybe there's another spider in universe 42 that hasn't bit somebody yet. I don't know, but I think you know, they're making out Miles to be this anomaly. I don't think he's an anomaly and my partner has a theory that it's not that Miles is not an anomaly because we're both trying to figure out just point blank. We're watching all of these other universes get destroyed because of anomalies or anomalies like glitching out. Like there's a lot of, okay, something is not right here that you pick up on when there's an anomaly or a variant or whatever in like the whole Marvel Sony universes, right? But there was never anything like that in Miles's universe until that other Peter got stuck there, but that was, you know, and, and then those other spiders in the, in the first movie, but that didn't have anything to do with Miles' existence, right? Like, it had to do with the Collider stuff, and that started before the spider 
the the anomaly was brought into their universe. Collider work started before that, so it's not a a cause sanction from Miles' anomaly, right? Because it started before. So my partner's theory is that if someone from that universe initiates the anomaly, it is not an anomaly. But if somebody from another universe visiting that universe causes an anomaly, it's an anomaly. So for example, and this is his theory and I have mixed feelings about it because I like my theory, because my theory is more wholesome. But um, the scientist in Miles's world brings the spider from universe 42, which does not belong in Miles's world, right? It belongs in Earth 42. But we never saw consequences of that anomaly and it biting Miles, right? And it's yeah. because someone from Miles's world initiated that anomaly. Whereas partway through the movie, Miles visits another universe and does something to affect the timeline. And then something drastic happens in that universe. And, and we think that's because he's not of that universe and he caused the action. Whereas if, I don't remember his name, but I believe it's in India, Spider-Man is, is the universe that they're in. If that Spider-Man had done the same action per Trevor Theory, my partner, then it would not have caused the catastrophic aftermath. Man, it would be so much easier if I just had seen the movie. <laughs> oh, I know. This is what I warned you about and when we, we were talking on my stream. And also, I think I get the Spider-Man 2099 now. I think, I think I get it. But there are so many just little nuggets. Like, I know you were telling me and you were like, I've seen screenshots and like things have been spoiled and like Okay, there might be some big things that have been spoiled, like Miles's reveal as the Fowler in Universe 42. But there's a lot. Like, because it's not the ending of the Prowler being Miles is not the cliffhanger that I'm upset about. Gotcha. I'm upset about the scene after that. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> I'm, I'm upset about the scene after it because they didn't, like, if they would have left off on Miles being revealed as the Prowler, I think that would have been the conclusion that was, like, a nice, but it still wouldn't be a conclusion. I'd still be a little upset, but I wouldn't be as upset. It's the scene after where I'm like, no, you can't show me that because now I'm ready for the continuation of the movie. Like, <laughs> No. <laughs> All right, so what I'm going to have to do is end this recording, then send you another invite, because I only have, like, an hour for each segment that I do. Okay. So uh, we'll have a little bit of a break. So I guess give me about two minutes, and then we'll uh, come back and 
we'll talk about the writer strike. That's going to be very fun. And how Marvel's found themselves in a little bit of hot water with their villains lately. Sounds good. All right. See you in a few minutes. See you in a few. Right, we're back with the second part of the podcast, and I would say probably my ranty side of the podcast, because mm-hmm. we got quite a bit of interesting things to talk about. So we got to talk about the writer strike and Marvel having, I guess, some bad time with their villains lately. They're getting the Ezra Miller treatment when it comes to two of their villains. So I guess, uh, first off, what do you want to talk about first? You want to talk about the writer strike or what's going on with Marvel's villains? Let's do writer strike. Okay. So, for those of you that don't know out there, there is currently a writer strike going on, and it is affecting a lot of productions across the board. I know that Daredevil: Born Again has been uh, had its production shut down recently. I know Blade's getting um, shut down as well. That movie's probably never going to come out at this point, um, along with others. And if this writer strike doesn't end soon, it's going to turn into an actor strike. Then we're going to have a really big problem. It's going to screw up pretty much everything for about 10 years, if that's the case. But, um, so this kind of leaves Marvel in a very interesting situation when it comes to their Avenger movies, when it comes to their upcoming projects, because Marvel right now is not in the best place. Um, I, I would say in terms of their content, most of it, from phase four hasn't really been that good. It's been okay to lackluster. And um, I I don't know. I just don't find the Marvel product projects coming out to be as polished. And I'm starting to wonder if that has to do with not just the VFX artists, but now that we got a writer strike going on, if the writing is part of it, because some of the writing in these shows are terrible. She-Hulk. I have not seen She-Hulk yet. I'm not gonna lie and i don't particularly have interest (laughs) well that's that's the thing like most people i talk to even i talked to carrie about she hulk and she's like yeah i watched like maybe one or two episodes and i couldn't finish it i'm like the writing in the show they say it's a comedy right oh if we call it a comedy we can get away with whatever no you can't this show is terrible the only episode that's good is the daredevil episode and that's because daredevil's in it but essentially in the show the writing is pretty much okay. Jennifer Walters is perfect. She has no problems. She berates Bruce in the first episode. Yeah, you get to know her for the first episode and immediately you dislike her because she's telling Bruce about how her getting catcalled is worse than him hulking out, killing people, and, you know, almost committing suicide. Well, trying to commit suicide in a deleted scene in The Incredible Hulk, but it was brought up in The Avengers. So she's berating Bruce. So it didn't really make her exactly likable. And basically every character in this movie that's a guy outside of Daredevil is incompetent, a complete sexist to the point where they refer to women as things. And I'm like, like, who do you talk to that actually talks like this? Because most people I know don't talk like this. It's like they took a stereotype of like dumb generic assholes, put them on every guy, and then every girl in the show is perfect in every way. And it was the mo- it, it, it was so hard to watch because it wasn't even funny. And it's comedy. You got, you know, Jennifer Walters in her first episode berating the Hulk and doing everything better than him. 
which makes no sense because she gets Hulk powers and she just immediately knows how to control it and do everything. So, like, the writing for that show in particular was gosh awful. Couldn't stand it. But in every other Marvel project that I've watched since, the writing is ultimately okay at best. I haven't seen the new Guardians, so that's that's not including that. But outside of that, it's okay. I mean, No Way Home I loved, but the first half of that movie was kind of boring. And they, you know, got rid of the whole, oh, my identity got revealed. They kind of, you know, did that very easily. And the second half of it was good, but it was also like a big nostalgia fest. So I don't really consider it a fully original movie, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the writer strike, that just makes me more concerned about how Marvel's future projects are going to be, especially the Avengers movie. Like, you got two big Avengers movies coming up, Secret Wars being the big one. And you aren't even writing the Marvel movies currently as entertaining. No, that's fair. The one thing I'll challenge now, given I have not seen She-Hulk, I don't want to see She-Hulk, but from the sounds of it, I would challenge you to think that it is comedy in satire where they take the stereotypes and they're really, you know, pushing those stereotypes and it's obnoxious and it's stupid, but it's to get you to think because... The first scene that you talked about, now given, I haven't seen it, it might be horrible, but here's where I think they might have been going with it, where she's berating Bruce and is like, oh, well, your trauma's not valid to my trauma. I think that's a stereotype that we've created in society, and I think that that scene, while it makes us as fans of Bruce Banner, you know, cringe and be like, girl, what the heck? Like, you know, and it puts that barrier to her character. I think it's also social commentary because I think we have all had trauma in our lives. But I think we look at other people's trauma sometimes and we're like, oh, well, I've never been traumatized because my trauma is not that bad. Like, you could have had a rough childhood but then you meet a friend who was physically abused and you're like oh i had a wonderful childhood compared to that well yes compared to that yes but that does not mean that you experience your own trauma so is she wrong for saying that bruce banner's trauma is not valid absolutely but i think that's something that we all do where we're like, oh, my trauma is not valid, your trauma is not valid because this person's trauma is worse. I think it's social commentary on that, and I think it's an exaggeration on that, possibly. Now, whether they, like, executed it right or not, I'm not saying that because I haven't seen it, but I think that might have been the mindset of that scene, is trying to commentate on being catcalled freaking sucks man like i i got catcalled for the first time on my way to a surgery that was a really interesting experience and 
I, you know, it was warm out. I had my window rolled down. I had my arm out. I was listening to some music and I was at a stoplight and this car of like four young males, probably like late teens, early 20s, because they didn't look much older than me, drove up beside me and they said something and I turned my music down. I'm so thankful I had my sunglasses on. I turned my music down and looked at them and I was like, what? And they're like, hey, yo, what's your number? And I was like, what? And then they just started like catcalling and asking for my contact stuff. And I have never been so uncomfortable because I'm at a stoplight in a very crowded area. There are cars on both sides of me, in front of me, behind me. Like I can't go anywhere. Like if I had the choice, I would have gone into the right hand lane and turned right just to like get away. Like it was super uncomfortable and I have my window rolled down. So God forbid one of the guys like tried to jump out of the car and like get into mine. Like there was nothing I could do in that moment. It's not a fun experience. And I'm not saying it's worse than the trauma that Bruce went through. But it is still a traumatizing experience that I also, as a female, have never been catcalled up until recently. I also didn't necessarily understand the validity of it. But I think, I hope, what they were trying to do is social commentary on we recognize suicidal thoughts, not being able to control yourself, like the outbursts and experience that Bruce Banner had. We recognize that as valid trauma as a society. We look at that trauma and we say, yes, that is trauma. You need help. You are valid in your feelings. But we look at other people's trauma, like the She-Hulk, and we don't recognize that. And my hope, especially if it's such a female-forward TV show, since it's like, all the females are perfect and all the males are stupid. Like, if it's that kind of show, my hope is that that was the intention, was to just make you think about the validity of different kinds of trauma. Like, you don't have to be at the absolute worst end of the trauma spectrum to have gone through something traumatic. Again, my hope of what their intentions were, not saying they executed it correctly. But I would challenge you to look at that scene that way. So I, I guess, so I can put some more context, I guess, on when she was talking to Bruce and how it was written. Because there are scenes in movies and games where, you know, you play as a, a female uh, protagonist and they deal with some very dark shit. And... I feel very empathetic towards them because th the way that they write it and they show it, they give you a reason to feel empathetic towards that person. Especially if you're talking about like somebody, you know, in real life, right? right. Like you can empathize with them because you know them. And on top of that, like, you know, they're a good person. The way that they write She-Hulk in this, in this scene. So before we actually, you know, see her get cat called, she, you, you don't get to see this beforehand outside of, I think one of her uh, co-workers basically just says that like he was a, a better warrior than her or whatnot. Um, but then again, I haven't watched it in a little while. But when she meets Bruce and is talking to him about the trauma aspect, the way that she goes about it is 
not only is she very dismissive of him, but Bruce is trying to help her with when it comes to her getting her Hulk powers because they get into a car crash, she gets the Hulk blood in her, and he takes care of her, and he's trying to teach her the ways of being a Hulk. And she's being very rude to him the entire time. Essentially, when he's training her, you know, she's being snarky when she outdoes him and she's doing it with relative ease. So it's not even like a, oh, my trauma's worse than your trauma thing. She's just being a douche to him the entire time when he's just trying to help her and their family. So, and, and he even sits there and tries to empathize with her, but she just acts as if everything that she is doing, like the world revolves around her character. And that's what makes it hard for me to understand where she's coming from because the way that she acts towards other people especially her cousin of all people like it seems like as if her and bruce aren't even related or they don't have any actual genuine like family chemistry because of how rude she was to him so it, you're it, making it me want to watch it and i'm not okay with that <laughs> But like, if you watch the first episode, maybe you'll see it differently than me. That's what I like about talking with people that have different viewpoints on it. But when I was watching it, and I went into She-Hulk with an open mind. I wasn't hating it from the beginning. Because I was actually excited. I was like, she breaks the fourth wall like Deadpool. I liked her in the comics. But when you watch the show, it just feels like her character is on a pedestal. And she kind of looks down on other people. Or is always talking shit, if you will, about people. So th it always seems like that that's where she's coming from. Even when in the Daredevil episode, when oh. Daredevil's trying to explain to her, like, you know, I'm going to go into the warehouse and I'm going to take out these guys and stuff. And then she starts arguing with him about, you know, oh, you want to go pick off goons and stuff? Let's just run in there and just, you know, beat them up and stuff. Like, it, she, it's as if, like, she's trying to be like, well, I'm stronger than you. So let's just let's just do this. And it's dismissive to how he does things. Do you think so it's even a response? sense hmm? do you think it's a trauma response like she's I coming see. this i i have to watch the first episode now i'm at least dedicating myself to the first episode but it seems like she's putting up these walls and she's holding herself on this pedestal and cutting these ties and treating people poorly is that her coping mechanism is that all right i don't know what just happened <laughs> no all good um, but do you think it's a trauma response? Her defense mechanism to becoming the Hulk. You know, we see Bruce lose it emotionally and become, like, unhinged. And he has problems controlling, right? Yeah. Is her way of coping with the accident and becoming the Hulk her being hyper fixated on controlling it and everything around her and becoming the best because she can't take a minute to be like oh my god this happened to me because that's this is something i know from my experience in student life over the past several years um and again i say this loosely because i haven't seen it but everybody reacts differently to situations and I know it's something that I have done where something goes wrong I'm like okay I don't care I'm better than this I'm better than the people around me I need to prove myself that this didn't affect me like it is a defense mechanism 
And it might have been written extremely poorly, which made it hard to see it as such. But I think I get the intentions because I can see myself doing that as a defense mechanism of like, oh my God, I can never go back to my old life. Oh my God, like there's something wrong with me now. No, no, there's not something wrong with me. I'm going to use this to my advantage and, and be better than everybody else and everybody's below me. It's, it is a trauma response. So one, I guess, so there's a scene in this movie also in the Daredevil episode. So this is what I think is very funny in contrast. Like I can understand when she's being, you know, upset with people that are being rude to her. Like there's this guy in the show called Todd and he has like a She-Hulk fetish and shit. And he's always hitting Ew. on her and trying to do trying to have like um you, you know like a romantic relationship if you will and she keeps rejecting him but when you meet daredevil right um outside of the courtroom scene where they're obviously um supporting two different um two different clients she's actually very nice to her like they meet up at a at a lawyer's bar after uh he gets her a drink talks to her about how he can use you know she hulk to help people when the law fails and jen walters can help people with the law and even as Daredevil, you know, he, when they're fighting uh, some of the goons, they're talking like lawyer strategy because um, the goons work for her client. And at the end of the episode, they, she asks him like, oh, are you going to, you know, when are you going back to New York and stuff? And he's like, um, oh, tomorrow, maybe I can take you out to dinner next time I come in town. And Matt's, you know, been very genuine with her this whole time. And throughout the show, she complains about, oh, all well, these guys just, you know, want they don't want to date me for me and they want to just sleep with me. So here comes Matt Murdock, right? Being genuinely nice to her, buys her a drink, has a nice conversation with her, talks her up, they just get done fighting. And he offers to take her out for dinner the next time they meet. What does she decide to do? She decides to have sex with him on the first time. And I'm like, this whole show you've been complaining about not finding a good guy. Then a good guy shows up. And then the first instinct is to just sleep with him. Like, that goes Trauma against... response. That's crazy. It's just, for me, when I'm watching it, it just doesn't make sense in my mind. You know what I'm saying? Like, they write in a way where it's like, I want this. Then she gets that. And then doesn't go through with the thing that she said that she wanted. Yeah, you know, I'll have to see it. But from what it sounds like, like... I have friends in my life that I have seen go through that exact same path where they've had bad experiences with males or females. You know, I've had guy friends go through this. I've had girlfriends go through this where they have a bad experience, several bad experiences, and they kind of like, you know, swear off guys or girls entirely, and they're like, you know, this is stupid, I'm not gonna find anyone for me, no one likes me for who I am, and then they meet somebody nice, and they jump into it so fast, like, you know, they have sex instantly, and then for some, it works out, for others, the relationship isn't necessarily what it could have been if they possibly approached it in a different way, but it's a trauma response to I didn't have this and now I have the possibility of having this and just like either running away from it or attacking it and not 
letting it run its course. I think this show, you're making me want to watch it, but I think there's a psychological undertone that could have been written in better is what I'm taking because I am understanding these scenes and her reasons for acting the way she does, like her character. I understand where she's coming from. These are valid scenes to me, but it seems like it's written in a way that it's hard for a general audience. You know, like I'm one in... I'm just going to throw a random number. One in, like, 650,000 that gets it. You know what I mean? Like, that's not to blame you or anything. And not to blame the storyline. Because I think I get it. But I'd have to watch it to make sure. Because I don't have all the other context clues here. But I think it has to do with the poor writing. But I get it. Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing that always disappoints me when it comes to these shows and stuff. Because it's like... I want to enjoy shows and enjoy characters. Like Captain Marvel is another example of writing a character where the personality of the character is a brick wall. Like the cat there's not much like the with a character. character in that movie. Prove me wrong. Who? The cat, Goose. Oh, the cat's the best character by far. That or Nick Fury. Yeah. But for sure. it's the writing. It, it makes me it so upset. So like, bad. look at yeah. Look at Wanda Maximoff, though, right? A very well-written character. Like, the pain that she's suffering. Like, when you look at WandaVision, as much as I didn't like WandaVision, when you go into Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, you understand where her pain's coming from and what she's trying to do, right? But when it comes, and it's written well, and you feel for the character. I mean, you know, this is a woman that made a family in her own mind, and then it got ripped away from her with reality, and she wants to get that back, but the way that she goes about it is through the dark hold, which obviously leads to corruption and screwing things up. So it's all about the writing. Like She-Hulk, I was excited for the show, and then I started watching it, and I was bored. I was literally just watching it to review it for the podcast, and it got so hard to watch because like, I didn't want to dislike Jennifer Walters. I was very hyped for the show. And then I watched the show, and I was like the writing is is just terrible because if you're trying to make me feel for Jennifer Walters, like you're doing the opposite. You're making me root against her, if anything, especially after the first episode. And if you're trying to display like, you know, a woman going through a lot of, you know, different problems, for instance, Karen Page in Daredevil. In season three, there's an episode dedicated to her. Funny enough, she's from Vermont. That's where the episode took place. You got to see her partying at um, college, doing drugs, selling drugs. The fact that her family dynamic was broken. Her brother gets killed. She gets blamed for it, gets kicked out. Like you see all of these things that she goes through and she's been, you know, um, you know, people have tried to murder her multiple times. Like you see all the trauma that Karen Pages went through and yet she still keeps throwing herself at the forefront of the danger to do the right thing. If you will make up for her past mistakes. But you still see everything she goes through throughout the entire Daredevil series from season one to three. But with She-Hulk, the way that they write her is, I have all this trauma, but instead of writing her in a way where it's relatable and you can feel for the character, they write her in a way that she's superior to everybody. She looks down at everybody. 
She says that she wants a nice, like when the guys go on dates with her, they don't want to date Jen Walters. They want to date She-Hulk. So when she's Jen Walters, the guy's like, nah, I don't want anything to do with this. And then when she meets Daredevil, who likes Jen Walters, she just decides to go sleep with him. And I get where you're coming from and, and what you're talking about with some of the people that, you know, you've known in your life that have uh, gone that route. But as an audience member that has seen female characters written very well and very emotionally where I'm like, I am really invested in this character. And it's a shame they're not bringing back uh, Karen Page and Daredevil Born again. But to see She-Hulk, the, the writing is so drastically different on a likable character to a non-likable character. Because if her character is supposed to be about female empowerment, the way that they wrote this character it made you dislike the character, which in turn hurts the message that you're trying to do. I always say to people, if you're going to do a commentary, you do it in a way where it's not, I guess, spearheaded at the forefront. So instead of like telling people to watch your movie for a message, like I used to read ultimate Spider-Man. They talked about racism in that whole series through mutinism, which was basically everybody being afraid of mutants in that world it made sense for marvel and it was um it wasn't marketed on oh we're talking about racism but it was done what's the word i'm looking for um i think it starts with an s it's like it's done in a way where you're not uh thinking about it right off the top of your head like it, the messaging's in there you understand it you get it but it's done in a way where it's um embedded in the story well enough to where you're not like oh this is just another message being pushed on me kind of thing you know it's ingrained in the storyline very well so that's another part of the writing in, in some of the modern shows where it's like they're trying to push a message and you can see it rather than making it an undertone in the show and not spearheading it as like the this is why you need to watch it kind of thing you know yeah but yeah, it it seems that writers everything has been affected. Yeah. And even before the writer strike, it was very clear that the writing for most shows and stuff have gone completely downhill or movies. So well, when it comes to before a strike officially happens, like you know it's coming. So I'm sure that, you know, there was a buildup to this strike in the content that came before it everywhere that, because like, I don't think it's just Marvel, like, oh no, no, it's everybody. The latest movies, period, point blank over the past few years, I feel like there have been less, oh my God, amazing movies than what I remember growing up. And some of that might be because, like, obviously growing up, I'm a child with, like, lower expectations. But I still, like, rewatch those movies now, and I still have those good experiences. Whereas movies, honestly, since, like, 2019, 2020, I think, I haven't had as many oh my god 
experiences with movies. You know what I mean? So I think they knew this writer's strike was coming for a while. You could definitely probably feel the tension in every studio, in every, uh, you know, production company. You could feel the tension. It affected the work. It affected the mindsets. Like, this had an effect on the content we were digesting before the strike became official. Because my partner was on strike recently. And, you know, the public saw, okay, the strike started this day, and they're doing this, and this, and this, and this. And then the strike ended this day, and blah, blah, blah. I he experienced the tension and you know the no one talks about how the work environment is before strike or like the union is before strike or the expectations before strike when you're oh what's the word when you're going to the table and you're like talking about negotiations yeah thank you when you're making negotiations and you're talking about it that's when it starts affecting and even before that because you were I say you and I mean like as a whole not individual people but like you know the guild was not happy there's a reason that they wanted certain things it was a long time build up and I also whenever the strike is settled and it stops eventually you know because it's not going to go on until, like, the end of time. Like, there is going to be a stop date at some point. It's not an infinite thing. But it's not going to be, okay, and everybody goes back to work all happy-go-lucky. Like, there's still going to be that tension and stuff that's going to affect movies post-strike for probably a few years. Like, I think we're going to have about a decade of movies start to finish that were affected by the strike, even if the strike lasts under a year. Because I think we had the few years leading up to when the strike started, and we're going to have a few years whenever the strike ends. I'm. This is not me predicting that the strike is literally going to go until December. I'm just... <laughs> um, but it's going to have a long-term effect it's not going to be the strike is over movies are great again huzzah it's this is going to affect us until like 2026 2027 like you and i are going to be near in our 30s before the effects of the strike resolve i think yeah i i think that too and the the sad thing is is that it's already been bad for the movie scene as of lately because there's like Marvel movies I don't really want to go watch. I don't even want to go to the theater and watch movies for the most part. There are very few movies that can get me to go. But it's really sad because, you know, we've seen movies like an Avengers Infinity War, like a um, um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Civil War. Like we've seen great writing. And when you go to a Marvel movie, there's certain expectations that you have with it. And obviously, we have two new Avenger movies coming. Uh, they've been pushed back um, a few years, which, I mean, obviously, they should. But we don't want to get to, like, big movies like that and then have it 
be written so bad that you're like, I can't believe this is an Avengers movie. Like, it, it would blow your mind at how bad it would be written. Mm-hmm. So, it although this is going to go on for many years post, um, you know, the agreement, you know, being made, it, it's still one of these things where you start to wonder, well, what projects are going to be, you know, affected across the board. Like, even video games, I'm pretty sure, get uh, thrown into this lump because they have to write stories and stuff for that as well. So I think even in the gaming realm of things, you're, you're going to start to see stories and stuff not exactly be as polished or making as much sense. Um, and the gaming industry, they are going through their own version of, tor- tor- I can't even say it, turmoil lately and gaming hasn't even been that good either uh, there's like very few games that i look forward to i'm looking forward to starfield and spider-man 2 it's really about it um but it's very sad to see that you know we're at this point of having to do another writer strike because i think even the first transformers movies back in the day suffered from writer strikes and you could see it so it does make me very concerned about upcoming films and shows in general because I, I'm excited for Secret Invasion. Don't know if it's going to be good. Right. Um, right. Seems to say it's not, but they said that about Transformers and it turned out to be fine. So we'll just have to wait and see. But my hope is with the writer strike, they can, you know, end it sooner rather than later because if the writer strike turns into an actor strike, then this is going to be pushed into probably our thirties at that point. Yeah, when it, when it turns into an actor strike, like the the more consequences that come of this, the longer we will feel the effects after it concludes. So yeah, if actor strike happens. 20, 20, 30 something? <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a very rough like decade of movies of just, oh gosh, I don't want to go watch them. And, and, and think about this too. If you have worse effects and people go watch movies and they become worse and worse quality and then people stop seeing movies or buying them, what's going to happen then? Then you got to look at the whole landscape of Hollywood and how that's going to change from budgets to layoffs. Like, there's there's so many things that can go wrong here. Mm-hmm. It actually has me worried, and I hate to be this guy. But back in the day, we were kind of sensible. Nowadays, everything's crazy. So I don't know how long it's going to take for them to come to a decision. Because if it was hard back then when we were sensible, and nowadays we're not so sensible, kind of kind of makes me more worried. Mm-hmm. And I do want to preface, like, while you and I are talking about this, we are just talking about the consequences of the writer's strike from a consumer perspective. We are not in any form casting blame on anyone involved in the strike, including the production companies. We're not blaming the Writers Guild. We're not blaming the production companies. We're not trying to assert blame or anything here. We are simply just talking about the consequences. Because... Especially when you talk about, you know, how different our society is now. You and I know this. We've talked about this. I think it's harder to have conversations like this where, you know, we're talking about the consequences of something 
we don't we have not discussed our feelings about the movement itself. We, we, you know, you and I have not said a single word about how we feel about the writer's strike, if we agree with it or not, but there are going to be people who listen to us talking about the outcome, be like, Oh my God, you're totally against the writer's strike or, Oh my God, how could you not be on the side of the production companies or blah, blah, blah. And you and I are just sitting here like that's, you just missed the whole point. So <laughs> I want to preface that real quick. Just like on the same note of, you know, society's so chaotic right now. That is not what we were talking about. And if that's what you got from it, you need to back up and re-listen. <laughs> yeah, no, because like what we mainly are as consumers, like that's what we do. That's how, you know, we make content, whether that's playing games on Twitch, doing podcasts, whatever it may be. We as a consumer are a part of that ecosystem. So there's all different sides of the people working in the ecosystem. And then you have those that are consuming mm-hmm. what's coming out of, uh, you know, the companies that are producing it and whatnot. But for me, I don't really choose a side. I'm on the side of what gives us the best content or, or the best quality of things. Um, and for that, you know, that obviously means you need to have good writing. Um, so obviously if the writers are happy, you know, chances are you're going to get better writing, hopefully. I mean, that's not always how it works out, but you can't really stand on a side in some situations, you know, um, and I, in some positions I'm neutral in other positions, I'm very honest about this is where I stand. And yeah, but when it comes to this, I, I'm just letting it play through. Um, it's not really going to affect my life in a huge way. Like it's not going to stop me from going to work or weightlifting or anything. So I, I don't, it's not something I need to have a a stance on, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, until it starts affecting my everyday life. Then yes, I I would have to choose a stance at that point. But right now, uh, I, I don't need to, but I just find it interesting because it's definitely going to make movie reviewing much more interesting the next few years. See how that goes. I'm hoping good. I'm hoping that we're going to, you know, get good movies and stuff and good writing. And even amongst the writer's strike, there might still be good, you know, written movies and stuff. It's just, you know, things are going to get delayed and things are going to get pushed back. So that's really the main consequence is the delays initially. And then obviously whenever the film does come out, that's when you figure out if the delays of the writer's strike or whatnot, if it affected the movie or not. Yeah. So our last major topic of today is going to be talking about Marvel and their villains and kind of the hot water they find themselves in right now. So I'm going to ask you first and foremost what you know of, you know, what's been going on with a few of their actors and what's come out. I do not. I'm not going to lie. I have been out of the social media slash news loop for quite a while now which has honestly been really nice to just kind of detox from it from a little bit which has been like again so nice but also i'm extremely uninformed about a lot of other things so currently there are two actors um uh, Marvel villains that are under sexual allegation um mm. Or sexual assault allegation. Um, oh, what is it called? My brain's blanking here. Um, investigations. And the two actors or the two villains is um, Namor from the new Black Panther movie. 
And Jonathan Majors, Kang, their new big Thanos-level villain, which is, I would say, the more greater of the two in terms of the impact it has on the MCU. So as of right now, there has not been, you know, any confirmations of guilty or not guilty. The um, one about the um, Namor actor, Mm -hmm. that was actually very recent. Like, we're talking, like, a few days back or so. Yeah. So, it's very interesting, especially after the whole Johnny Depp situation. You kind of have to look at everything with a grain of salt and really either pay attention to everything going on within those cases and or just waiting until you get a lot of information. Because the thing when it comes to Namor, when it comes to Marvel Studios, they could probably just recast him. Um... However, when it comes to Kang, they, unlike with Thanos, they put all their eggs in one basket with Kang because Thanos was only in a few select movies. Kang is going to be in many MCU movies and projects before we get to Kang Dynasty. So now Marvel has this bad press on their back with two of their actors, one of them being very significant. It's very interesting, I guess, to see this because when the allegations came out, I was like, well, this could be another Johnny Depp situation. So just waiting to hear what actually is the case. You know, if he's, you know, guilty, then throw him in jail and, you know, give him the harshest punishment they can. And if he's innocent, then I feel really bad for him because to go through false allegations in and of itself could cost you your job. And I think Marvel right now is considering recasting him anyways. Um, Because I know that's been in the talks. So for me, it's very interesting, I guess, how all this is coming about. Because you have to be very wary when it comes to these things. Because I think Jonathan Majors, you know, played Kang very great. I think he's a talented actor. It would really be a shame for, you know, his past to come back and bite him in the ass now. But... I, I'm very curious to your thoughts after hearing about this, you know, kind of where you stand on it or what your worries are with that being the case for either of these actors. I mean, it's kind of what you said with the Johnny Depp scenario. Like, I want to believe people when they come forward because coming forward is a really, really hard thing to do. I think skepticism is healthy. I think giving kind of everybody, the people that come forward and the people being accused, support in this time until the truth is found is really important because I think that's what kind of society discovered with the Johnny Depp scenario and kind of what happened with the Me Too movement which seems like forever ago and it's hard to believe it was only like you know five years ago um you it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? You want survivors of assault and abuse to come forward, but then there are people that abuse that and 
manipulate and blame people of these sadistic, twisted things. And you don't know who to believe anymore. And it sucks because you want to believe true victims, but you don't want to destroy the life of a person that has never done anything wrong, you know? Um, and I hate when production companies recast when the truth has not been found out yet. Because like with the Johnny Depp scenario, what if the person that you just let go because they had accusations against them is innocent? That's going to tarnish your studio's reputation just as much as it would if you kept them on and they were guilty. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no good move for production companies in the eyes of the public. And I feel for them from a marketing perspective. I did get a degree in marketing. And I get why they let people go because they don't want to get tied up in the drama. One, vet your actors. You know what I mean? Like, protect yourself as a studio before you hire somebody by vetting them. But, like, you know, stay true to it. Delay things if you can. Stay true to it until you get a verdict or you get a result. And then take action from there. So let's say the stuff against Jonathan Majors is true. Let's say it is. I would understand and not be upset as a consumer if Marvel kept him on and kept filming with him until the guilty verdict. Again, this is assuming it is true. This is a scenario where it is true because we're just in the allegation stage right now. I would be okay as a consumer with them continuing to film with him until the guilty verdict. And then taking the proper action after that. And if they finished a movie, still releasing that movie. Because at the time of that movie, he was not found guilty yet. If they were partway through filming, it's the studio's decision to start refilming with a, a new cast member or to finish it out like that's when it gets a little rocky or like at the beginning of filming slash they haven't started filming yet letting them go and recasting but i always have mixed feelings with allegations have come forward we're not dealing with you you know what i mean like yeah I, as a person you know, I think we've forgotten as a society the whole innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, very much so. I, I agree with that. But, like, because because I see all sides of it, right? Like, again, I want to believe victims, but I also know people abuse the system. And I don't want to 
you know, shun someone from society when they haven't done anything wrong. And it sucks that we have these doubts about allegations, but it's important that that's the reason they're called allegations. You know, in journalism, it's important that when we tell these stories, that we use the word allegation. You know, you have not yet been found guilty. I think, listen, I've been on a, a Dr. Hill uh, uh, Dr. Phil, excuse me, a Dr. Phil tick for a while. I think he does a very good job in his shows where he makes it clear these are allegations. We don't know if they're true or not. I don't think everybody else does when news is unfortunately covering it or people are talking about it. People leave out the word allegations. It's just it's really messy. It's a PR nightmare. I get it. I think we have yet to find the perfect way for companies, period, not just Marvel, but or production companies, but just companies, period, when there's an allegation against an employee of yours. I have yet to hear the quote-unquote perfect way to handle those situations from a PR perspective, from a human resources perspective, doing good to the employee, doing good to the business, there is no good solution. So, I don't know I, I, what Marvel should do. I don't know what they can do. <laughs> because, as you said, Kang is a major character that's going to be used here for a bit. Yeah. So, no, and also, I don't know how I'm not gonna know how I feel about whatever decision Marvel makes until one after Marvel makes the decision and two after the the allegations, yeah, are confirmed or proved faulty, and then I'm gonna have an opinion, but. That's going to be so much later, and there would have been so much information that all these companies had to throw through, and they have to make a decision, like, now, because society is like, you must make a decision now, yeah. And then they're either going to get praise later or backlash later, and it just sucks. So, this is the way that I, I would think about going about it. So, in a contract that you sign with anybody... There should be as uh, an area in there where it states that if you are, you know, alleged to have done something, we'll, you know, still, and this should be for any employee's contract, doesn't matter if you're working in Hollywood or just a normal job, that if there's an allegation, we'll keep you working until the verdict has happened. And if the verdict is that you are guilty, you know, the money that they gave you or whatever, or maybe like if you have like a 401k or whatever with them, right, you send that money back to them. Like, you could put something in there where, you know, if you are found guilty, you know, you do get punished. But obviously, they can't punish you if you're not found guilty yet. So it kind of works on both ends where that way, if you're not guilty, you still get to, you know, keep everything you have and still work. But if you're found guilty, then you have to, you know, pay back money that, you know, you were getting, essentially. Now, I don't know how they would go about, like, oh, what you can and can't spend. I don't know how they'd go about that, but that would be my starting pitch on how to fix that problem. But, no, you're right when it comes to society being all screwed up on on this whole thing. Because 
I think the Me Too movement went too far to the point where um, innocent till proven guilty is like not a thing anymore, right? If you, especially if you're a guy, and you know, I've heard about this, I've seen stories on this because on my Rumble channel, um, and, and talking, you know, to young men about making yourselves better and becoming the best version of yourself. When it comes to dating, especially, we talk about this. You got to be very careful with the people that you interact with. Got to make sure you have, you know, messages saved things videotaped like you you gotta have all the evidence in the world because as a guy once you're accused chances of you losing your job are very high people are immediately going to see you as guilty and then on the flip side if you're the person doing the alleging a lot of people are gonna doubt what you're saying because there are people that have you know using it to their own advantage now on the guy end of this i can understand how frustrating it must be where if you did nothing wrong and you dated somebody or let's say, you know, you and somebody did something consensual, but then you guys have a bad breakup or something. And then they turn around 10 years later and say, you know, maybe you made money, you've gotten, you know, rich or famous or whatever it may be. And they say, oh, this person actually did this to me 10 years ago. And I revoked my consent 10 years later. Like, it's a very murky water situation when it comes to anything like this. And even if you're not talking about it in Hollywood standpoint, it, it's a really hard problem because the balancing act of it all like there are people like us that you know waits for the actual results to come in before we make a judgment but most people nowadays will either be like she's lying or he's guilty and they'll be stuck on that premise and they won't have it any other way in their mind and it really sucks because regardless of which side of it you are on it makes life in general a lot harder especially dating nowadays imagine you go on a date with somebody you're having a coffee and you got to worry about did i save my text messages am i getting things recorded <laughs> you know is something going to be taken out of context down the road if i become successful or whatnot like you got to think about so many things and when it comes to these actors you know depending on if they have the evidence or not to you know prove that they are innocent you know, if they didn't save certain text messages or if somebody makes an allegation saying, you know, hypothetically, this guy, you know, sexually assaulted me or, you know, abused me. But then you come to find out that it was something consensual, you know, 10 years ago through text or an audio voice recording. Right. Without that voice recording or text, that person could be in falsely imprisoned or not, even if they didn't do it, but they were said to have done it without that needing to be there or, or without them having that evidence on hand. So it's very murky water. And that's part of the stuff I talk about on Rumble is if you're a guy and you're dating, keep all your messages, record stuff, you know, videotape, whatever you got to do to prove your innocence because someone can lie 10 years down the road, say you did something or revoke consent at any point, it seems like. So that's another thing too, is how do you prove if something depending on what the allegations are, if it was consensual and then revoked years down the line out of spite or anger, or if it was genuinely not consensual, like it just gets very murky. Yeah. It sucks. Honestly, that like, this is the, the world that we kind of live in right now. And I hate it from a humanitarian perspective. I hate that people do these things to each other. False allegations, the sexual assault, the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the emotional, verbal abuse and assault, the, and everything in between. 
I just hate it all. And I hate how finding justice has become a PR marketing assignment. Yeah. I hate it all, but I don't know what Marvel's gonna do. I don't know what I want them to do. I think you mentioned a clause in a contract earlier. Yeah. From a PR perspective, that would probably be like a good clause for any company to have because you can always say, hey, we have this clause, it's written out, blah, blah, blah. Like it's an easy fallback PR wise. You know, there's there's tons of solutions from a production company perspective for them to do, for Marvel to do. I just, I don't know, but I can hope that justice is found one way or another and proper actions are taken. That's all I can really say. And, and same here too. Um, I, I do, I, I did hear this. I don't know if this obviously is confirmed true or not. So take it with a grain of salt. But apparently I heard Jonathan Majors and the person that accused them were seen in public smiling with each other. So take that as you will. It's not a confirmed thing. So like I said, don't like if anybody screen records this or whatever says, this guy said this is like a confirmed fact. It's not. But I did hear it from somewhere. So if that does end up being true, that's going to hurt the, the case against him. And that's going to work in his favor if, if that's the... Uh, because obviously, you know, if you're, you know, doing sexual assault allegations, why would you be hanging out with the person that has done all the terrible things to you? And, you know, being happy just makes no sense. But we'll see what happens. You know, hopefully, you know, justice is served and we figure out what actually happened. It just really sucks because everything's so murky nowadays. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. Welcome. Welcome to the world we live in. <laughs> but that is going to do it for the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed. Sorry for the, uh, you know, three different segments because my phone decided to cut out there on the last one for some reason. But uh, it was nice having you on, Huff. We'll have to do this again once you see Transformers and I've seen Spider-Verse uh, Spider and actually do a deep dive into it. Maybe some other movies in the future when we get towards Avengers and stuff. Yes, absolutely. It's nice to have guests on. You know, normally the podcasts are maybe 30, 40 minutes, maybe. But now when you talk to people, they're more like two hours, but it's nice because I don't get to do it that often anymore. So, yeah. All right. Well, it's been good. I hope you have a good rest of your day. You, know, you as well. Thank you for having me. Hopefully the flash is good. <laughs> Fingers crossed, man. I... It's DC, so I don't have the highest expectations, but, you know, I'm going to enjoy it for what it's worth, because, as you said, the Ezra Miller situation, but I also, as you said with Jonathan Majors, I really like Ezra Miller as The Flash, so it's a shame, but I'm hoping that I can enjoy the movie. <laughs> I, I heard it was good. So, if that's any consolation. Yeah. I'm excited. And then, of course, Ben Affleck. Love. <laughs> <laughs> but I will let you know how the movie is. 
and hopefully hopefully i will enjoy it and we will have a good movie <laughs> i'm i'm hoping the best for you i got to i got to go do some scholarship stuff here so mm-hmm. once i wrap this up and get it posted fun fun all right well i'll catch you later and thank you all for joining yeah thank you